The message today is from Keep Believing Ministries. It's a good site that you can go to, and they deal with a whole lot of issues. We want to talk today about shall we kill our children? Let me ask a second question. Are children a blessing to us, or are they a burden to us? Well, I suppose it depends on who you ask, or what you mean or why you even ask the question, but I would say this, if you have to ask the question, you have already come up with the wrong answer. The Bible is clear enough on this point. Let me read it for you from the Psalms. Sons are a heritage from the Lord, and children a reward from Him. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children, a reward from him. Psalm 127, verse 3. Now, if we had no other verse in the Bible, if we had no other verse, we're going to share a lot of verses, but if we had no other verse, this would be sufficient to establish the biblical position. Children, the psalmist says, are a gift of the Lord. A gift of the Lord. Say, oh no, people have babies all the time. Well, yeah, that's true, but a lot of people don't have babies all the time. That is, they can't have children. And if they do have children, it's obvious that something has occurred that's changed things for them. We have in the scriptures a number of texts that indicate children are a gift from the Lord. God listened to Leah, I'm reading scripture, and she became pregnant. Genesis 30, verse 18. Leah was one of the wives of Jacob. And God had closed her womb. She didn't have any children. Rachel didn't have any children either. But then he opened Leah's womb and she began to have children. God listened to Leah. She's praying for a child. And she became pregnant. When Jacob returned after the estrangement with his brother Esau and was coming back, crossing over the river, Esau looked at all this great host that was coming towards him. And he said to Jacob, his brother, who are these? Here's what Jacob answered. They are the children God has graciously given to your servant. They're a gift from God to me. When Joseph was finally reunited with his, his father Jacob, who thought he was dead, and they went, brought, he went down into Egypt, he again looked at Joseph's children and he said, Who are these? And Joseph answered, They are the sons that God has given me. Genesis 48, verse 9. This is all in direct promise of God to Israel. If they were to be obedient to his commandments, he will bless the fruit of your womb. Deuteronomy 7 verse 13. God's promise to the people of Israel. Children are a gift from God. Psalm 127 3 also says that they're a heritage from the Lord. They're your heritage, your legacy. There was a woman on Huckabee last night who was given the choice from her doctors when she was pregnant. Your choice is this. Now there's obviously some medical complications here. But your choice is this. You can abort the baby or you can go blind. And he wasn't joking. Something physiological associated with her giving birth, would cause her to lose her eyesight. Wonder of wonders, she chose to lose her eyesight and give birth to the child. And her answer centered around, why would you, Huckabee asked her, why would you do such a thing? And she said something like this, children are our heritage. They're our heritage. They're the future generation. They're the next people coming along. 
in this country. And by the way, unless we produce 2.5 children on a regular basis in this country, the nation will die. But we're aborting, aborting, aborting. Today, over 200,000 people will show up in Washington, D.C. in support of right to life. And then thirdly, the psalmist says they are reward from him. Why even raise the question, you might ask, because Christians, and Judaism before it, has always been pro-child in its religion. We were pro-family before that became a political term. We've always been pro-family, which means, of course, children as well. That's the first point in your bulletin outline, that Christians love children because God loves children. There's a paper written by Keith J. White called A Little Child Will Lead Them, Rediscovering Children at the Heart of Mission. Keith White is a man that runs a blog, believe it or not, for children in the UK. The paper begins with the observation that some people wrongly assume the Bible has very little to say about children. But even a cursory reading of the Bible proves that it is pro-children from beginning to end. And he gives it an array of evidences in this paper. Let me list some of them for you. He says the whole plan of salvation depends on Abraham and Sarah giving birth to a son through whom all the people of the earth will be blessed. Isaac, yes, but... Paul says in Galatians that the seed wasn't Isaac, it was Christ. The salvation of sinners depends on a child, Christ's child. We've been studying that in the book of Isaiah. Jacob's sons became the founders of all the tribes of Israel. Think about that. The twelve tribes of Israel are named after Jacob's sons. Moses' parents, we're going to look at this a bit later. Moses' parents hid him from Pharaoh and Miriam, his sister. Watch the baby. Really saved the baby when you think about it. The whole point of the book of Ruth is the birth of Obed, ancestor of David and Jesse. God spoke through the boy, through the boy, Samuel, because the adults had made such a mess of the priesthood. You remember Eli and his sons. Eli was old and left his sons do things they shouldn't have done, and his sons were wicked men. But they were in the priesthood, and God raised up a boy named Samuel. And speaking of boys, David, just as a boy was used by God to rout the Philistines when all of the brave soldiers and men were fearful of that one that was huge in size called Goliath. Elijah brought a widow's son to life after he had died. So did Elisha, his successor. Josiah became a king over Israel when he was but eight years old. How would you like that responsibility? And Esther was an orphan child who championed the survival of her Jewish people during the days of the Persian Empire. Jeremiah was chosen by God to be a prophet before he was born. So he was born for the very purpose of being the great prophet he became. Why should we conclude, what should we conclude from this list? Mr. White offers this helpful summary. Quote, it is not just that these people happen to be children, but that some of the most significant acts and revelations of God were through these children. 
Their faith and actions are critically important in the unfolding and outworking of God's purposes. End quote. The paper goes on to detail, to prove the point that from the Old and New Testaments, this was so. It is not by chance that the New Testament opens with the story of the birth of Jesus. And when we first meet the Son of God, He comes into the world, not as a full-grown man, which Adam by the way, appeared as a full-grown man in the Garden of Eden, so God can do what he wants. But he comes as a child, stepping on the stage of history, in the, not in the prime of life, but in the most unusual way. He comes through a young couple that is betrothed but not married, in circumstances that arouse suspicion, in a stable complete with farm animals and all that that would entail, in a forgotten corner of the Roman Empire, in a tiny village, an insignificant village, wrapped in rags, swaddling claws, same kind of claws that would be used in burial in Jewish custom. So he came wearing claws of death and went out of this world the same way. And he was laid in a rough-hewn feeding trough, and he was born to working class parents, not the elite of society. Not a very <laughs> likely way for heaven's child to enter into the world, but that is indeed what happened. And the New Testament does not shy away from the fact that the Lord of glory came into the world through his mother's womb. Though conceived of the Holy Spirit, his birth was like any other human birth. Although the circumstances in our world today would have usually resulted in an abortion. Pregnant, no marriage, and so on. So what is miraculous about Jesus is the conception, the birth. We say virgin birth. It should be virgin conception. The birth is like any other birth that takes place of babies, except that the child was God's child. Now that brings us then to Joseph's dilemma, which we have in our outline. And I find it encouraging that the Bible records Joseph's honest doubts about Mary. We read in Matthew verse, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, that is before they had any sexual relationships, before they were married, she was found to be with a child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce, divorce, her, divorce her quietly, privately. In those days, a man could get a divorce in two ways. He said, well, I thought they were, I didn't think they were married. They weren't. They were betrothed. But betrothal in Jewish society was binding, yes. like marriage. An infidelity found in the betrothal period. Mm. Be stoned as an adulterer. So in those days you could do a divorce, but you had two options. You could do it publicly, a public divorce, by going before the judges at the gate of the city. That's where the judges sat. Every city had its court at the city gate. That would mean that the whole town would know of Mary's shame. Of course, there's some political pressure, public pressure to bring on people like that so that they wouldn't indulge in such conduct. Second way is he could get a divorce privately by giving her papers in the presence of two witnesses. It's entirely to Joseph's credit that he chose to do it privately and thus Spare Mary the humiliation of public disgrace. 
And that was his decision. But he didn't carry it out. It was his decision to do it privately. And he had every legal and moral right to divorce Mary. But he just couldn't do it. (laughs) As one writer put it, there was a short but tragic struggle between his legal conscience and his love for her. He hesitated. Yes, he um, waited. Mm -hmm. He thought hard. He thought long. He slept on it. Days passed by. As every day passed by, it became more evident that Mary was pregnant. Late at night, he lay in bed, staring into the blackness and wondering, what shall I do, what shall I do, what shall I do? Then one night it happened. He had a dream, and in the dream, God spoke to him. Let me read it for you. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1 and verse 20. That was the green light. To us this seems strange. A dream? What well, isn't strange to Joseph? God often spoke to people through dreams in the Bible. That's how we got our Bible. It was one means of many used to communicate God's will to his people. And it worked. Joseph needed assurance. I mean, he couldn't marry Mary until he was sure that this was the right thing to do. He had to know the truth. And God met him at this point of his need at exactly the right moment. And the final verse of Matthew 1 are sufficiently celebrated as great Christmas verses because they reveal Joseph's finest qualities. We don't Speak of Joseph too much, but here's what Matthew writes. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Oh, did you know it was commanded? Take Mary. Make her your wife. And he took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she had given birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 24 and 25. Observe, every step Joseph took testifies to his greatness and his great love for Mary. Firstly, by marrying her quickly, he broke the Jewish custom, but he protected Mary's reputation. She was pregnant. He wasn't the father. He married her anyway. And that has been repeated in this world many times by honorable men. Secondly, by keeping her a virgin until Jesus was born, he protected the miracle of Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit against slander from unbelievers. And boy, the slander did come. One day the Pharisees said to Jesus, Well, we were not born in fornication. Implication, we know you were. So word got out anyway that Mary was pregnant before any union with, uh, with Joseph. But he was able to say, you know, guys, I kept her a virgin all the time that she was carrying this child. Because this child isn't my child. This child is God's son. And then thirdly, by naming the baby, even though the name had been given to Mary and to Joseph by the angelic visitor, by naming the baby, he exercised the father's prerogative and thus officially took that child into his family as his own legal heir. Wow, think about that. Children are heritage of the Lord. This is my son. He gets what I have. I'll take care of him. I'll provide for him and so forth. Now besides the many theological lessons being taught and through the birth of Christ, I would simply point out that God loves children. 
Even those born in less than ideal circumstances. Boy, the world is full of that. We know that because he sent his son into the world in a way that teaches us that children matter to God and therefore they ought to matter to us. In Psalm 130, the psalmist takes the matter a step further with its explicit description of God's involvement in the unborn. Here's what the psalmist writes. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Wow. This is a strong statement of God's prenatal care in the Bible. How much does he know about the unborn baby growing in a womb? He knows everything. Like a skillful weaver, God forms the tiny little hands and legs, and you've seen pictures of that, I'm sure. Some of them have been in our bulletin inserts in the years past. He forms the hands and the legs as part of the body. He forms the heart and sets it beating within about eight weeks. He watches that little thumb and makes sure it finds its mouth. This is all in the womb. And, and you've seen pictures of that where babies are sucking their thumb in mother's womb. God knows all of this. He watches over. He superintends all of this. Well, what about babies that... Um, they're born and they're not so wonderful. They have deformities. Maybe they're born without a hand. Maybe they're born blind. Maybe they're born without being able to hear. What about those babies? Point three. Sarah Palin's baby boy. I started thinking about all this when the Republican nomination came for our Alaska Governor Sarah Palin to be vice president in the nomination. Like most people, before the nomination, I didn't know very much about her. But you didn't either. But that was about to change. Given the 24-hour news cycle, boy, they just hopped on that story like red hot. From being unknown, overnight, she had become one of the most talked about figures in American life. Okay. And one part of the story revolves around the fact that she gave birth to a child with Down syndrome. Down syndrome. One, was it one chromosome less? Just one chromosome less than normal. One chromosome creates Down syndrome. Well, that fact, along with the reality that she was an evangelical Christian, reignited the abortion debate in a way that we have not seen in recent years. Clearly many people were, they were uncomfortable with her pro-life stance. And some people feel vaguely uneasy still that she didn't choose to abort that baby. That she named Trig, T-R-I-G. Because she, she had learned that the baby in her womb was a down, going to be born a Down syndrome child. You need to abort that child. It's going to be retarded after all, don't you know? 90% of the babies 
diagnosed with Down syndrome, 90% are aborted. That may shock us, but I don't doubt that anyone is shocked by that because of the wickedness of abortion. Once abortion becomes legal, once prenatal testing becomes sufficiently accurate, it was inevitable that most parents would choose not to bring a child with Down syndrome into the world. But Sarah Palin was different. Motivated by her Christian faith, she gave birth to that son. And when she spoke at the Republican Convention in St. Paul, she introduced each member of the family, including Trigg, that she had in her arms. And this is what she said. In April, my husband Todd and I welcomed our littlest one into the world, a perfectly beautiful baby boy named Trigg. A perfectly beautiful baby boy. It's a wonderful way to say it, isn't it? And quite accurate. But not everyone <laughs> was thrilled with Sarah Palin's decision. Writing in a blog sponsored by the Center of the, for the Advancement of Capitalism, Nicholas Provenzo, who is the author of that particular blog, began this way. He says, like many, I, I am troubled by the implication of Alaska Governor and Republican Vice President candidate Sarah Palin's decision to knowingly give birth to a child disabled with Down syndrome. Given that Palin's decision is being celebrated in some quarters, it's crucial to affirm the morality of aborting a fetus diagnosed with Down syndrome or by extension any unborn fetus, a freedom that anti-abortion advocates seek to deny. Notice what he says. He says, it's crucial to reaffirm the morality of aborting a fetus diagnosed with Down syndrome. Unless we misunderstand Mr. Provenzo calls any decision to have a child, and I'm quoting again, a profoundly selfish choice. Whoa. He's not here referring to knowingly giving birth to a child with Down syndrome. He means that very decision to have a child, any child, is profoundly selfish. And of course, if his parents had not made the profoundly selfish choice, he wouldn't be around to make a profoundly evil and stupid statement. But you know it even gets worse. Because Sarah Palin knew that Trigg would be born with Down syndrome, her decision not to abort him in Mr. Provenzo's words is no less than, listen to this, the worship of retardation. The words should have choked him to death. So wicked. This is evil upon evil. Darkness upon darkness. But that is our society. Writing in the blog Mere Comments, sponsored by Touchstone Magazine, the, author, the editor of Touchstone Magazine, James Kushner, puts the issue in proper perspective. Here's what he writes. This highlights a great divide in our culture, one that will not go away all by itself and is widening. It is devouring everything from the unborn to those who are dying, with killing on both ends, called choice on the one end, euthanasia on the other, sweet words for a bloody business. Many citizens, including many who call themselves serious Christians and intend to be, are dancing on the edge of this abyss, seemingly unaware of the dangers as well as ignorant of the clarity of the long moral tradition upon which the Christian faith has stood for ages. What he's saying is, how could you be a Christian and be 
for this. And he's exactly right. Far from being a single issue among many others, abortion stands as a divide Dividing line between two different and opposing worldviews. One side protects life, the other side wantonly kills it. This is not primarily a political issue because there are pro-life and pro-abortion supporters by, in both major parties. To me the issue is far transcendent beyond those who sit in the White House. Abortion is a bloody business, but it devalues human life from its earliest moments and asserts the right of one person who happens to be on the outside determining the fate of someone who happens to be on the inside of the womb. It's a woman's choice, yeah? But the person in the womb is a totally distinct person. And medical science, by the way, has proven that point beyond doubt. That brings us then to Moses' parents. What about Moses' parents? This is one of the most important stories, Exodus chapter 2, that we have in the Bible. It's so important that the story is repeated three times in Scripture. Here in Exodus 2, we have the initial story. repeated again, Acts 7, verses 20 and following. And then Hebrews 11, verse 23. God keeps coming back to these parents in the birth of Moses. Here's the short form. Because the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, hated and feared the Jews, they were growing in number, he ordered the Hebrew midwives to put to death all of the male babies. They were prolific. They were having babies. They were slaves in Egypt at this time. So think of it. He thought of it this way. The slaves are becoming more than the general population. What happens when there's more slaves than Egyptians... Isn't that going to tilt things in their favor? Oh, then they'll have an uprising and we'll be in deep trouble. So he calls in the midwives that have helped the women of Israel have their babies. And he said, you know, every male baby you're to kill. Well, because they feared God, the midwives refused to follow the king's decree. In a further act of deranged madness, he ordered that all the male babies born to the Hebrews be thrown into the Nile. He couldn't get the midwives of Israel to cooperate, so he commanded all of the Egyptian people, you take the babies that are born to the Hebrew women and throw them into the Nile River. Apart from drowning, of course, there's another danger, saltwater crocs live in the Nile River. Watched a, um, I think, a History Channel uh, documentary on saltwater crocs. They can grow to be 20 feet long. They swallow people, not just babies, adults. Throw them into the Nile. Well, soon afterwards, a Jewish couple named Amram and Jochebed gave birth to a baby boy. And for three months, they managed to keep this child hidden in direct defiance, I might add, to the king's command. They feared God so much that they didn't fear the king at all. But eventually, they knew they couldn't keep this child hidden forever. So they placed him in a basket among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. That was a rather wise thing to do. Gutsy thing to do, I might add. It was a wise thing to do because they knew this to be the place where the women in Pharaoh's court would come to bathe. No running water these days. When Pharaoh's daughter found the baby in the basket, she knew 
instinctively it was a Hebrew baby. Who would be hiding their baby in the Nile River? And in one of the divine serendipities that fill the Bible, Moses' sister Miriam, who had been watching from a distance, runs up and volunteers to find a Hebrew mother to nurse the child. And so it turned out that Pharaoh's daughter ended up paying Moses' mother to nurse her own baby. Still later, her parents gave Moses to Pharaoh's daughter to raise in the Egyptian court. And this was not only God's protection, it was also God's preparation for the day when Moses would go and stand before another Pharaoh and command him, let my people go. When the writer of Hebrews makes his list of the heroes of the faith, he includes the parents of Moses. Here's what he says. By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. Because they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Hebrews 11, verse 23. Doesn't here name them, but he just calls them Moses' parents. Note the four key facts that he brings out. And just, just, just one verse. Number one, they hid Moses in direct disobedience to the king's command. He said, kill all the male babies. And they said, we will not cooperate with such an evil command. Now, we in America haven't reached quite, quite the point where parents are being commanded by government to kill their babies. But in China, a godless nation, this is the law. You're allowed two children Watch the boys, because the boys become warriors. What do we do when the government, our authority over us in the human plane, commands us to do something which is immoral and against God's laws? Well, here's the great example. They disobey. It's called civil disobedience. And there's a place for that in the Christian community. Number two, they somehow knew, this is, this is the writer's words, they somehow knew that he was no ordinary child. I don't know what that quite means. I don't know how they knew that. In a sense, parents always seem to think that their children are super duper special. They believe that their son or their daughter is the brightest, the most beautiful baby in the world. As far as we know, no angel came to say anything about this child. I think they just sensed that, that God had a particular, particular purpose in mind for Moses. One that they could not have imagined your son will someday deliver God's people from Egypt. I don't think they understood all of that. But they knew that he was a gift from God. They knew that he was a special delivered child from heaven. They deserve, that deserve their love and their protection and so forth. And so they risked everything to keep him alive. And then what they thought about that child, I think, began to fell, fall into place when Miriam, his sister, comes home to mom and says, You'll, you're never going to believe this. Pharaoh's daughter was down there at the, at the river taking a bath, and she's the one that found baby Moses, and she's looking for a wet nurse 
to raise this child for her. For her. Hmm. That means that when he's old enough, he's going to go live at the palace. wonder what that means. Began, the pieces began to fall into place. Number three, their faith rose above their fear. No doubt they flinched every time the baby began to cry. Babies do cry. Well, a crying baby meant that it might be discovered maybe by the Egyptians. Surely they took careful pains to keep him quiet, keep him out of sight. Perhaps only a few others knew even about the baby. In a situation like this, you never know who you can trust. Perhaps some of their neighbors would have turned them in, thinking, well, if they, you know, that crying baby is going to bring the wrath of the Egyptians down upon our whole Jewish community. Every day, Amram and Jochebed risked everything to keep their son alive, but they did not shrink back from their God-appointed task. Well, we're just going to trust God. Christian parents do that all the time when they know by science that the child in the womb is deformed like Sarah Palin's baby and they decide, well, that's God's decision but it's not my decision to take his life. And then number four, they could have never foreseen how God would honor their faith. Putting the child in a basket in the Nile River was a desperate attempt to save him. Knowing they could not keep him, they put him in the water, hoping against hope that someone who loved babies would come along, find him. By the way, the word translated basket in Exodus 2 verse 3 is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, only one other place, and that's with regard to the Ark of Noah. The basket in which his parents placed him was as safe for him as the ark was for Noah and his family. And strange as it might seem, Moses was safer in the basket than he had been if he had stayed in his parents' house. All of it, every part of it, was overseen by God who always intended to raise up Moses to one day deliver the people from Egypt. Thus God does rule and overrule the evil designs of wicked men. And there are stories like this all of the time. That brings us then to our last point, Moses and Jesus. This is one last parallel. Jesus was born... And Herod's irrational fear moved him to act in a very monstrous cruelty. You know the story. It's found in Matthew 2, verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, they were sent out to find Jesus and place where he was born. He was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinities who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi, Hebrews 2, or Matthew 2, rather, verse 16. The Magi had come, and, you know, they said, well, you know, we've seen his star, and we've been following it, and then and Herod said, well, when did you see the star? Well, you know, it's been about two years now. Oh, okay, all right, okay, two years. Mm-hmm. Put two and two together. And when the Magi did not report their findings To Herod, he took it as a matter of his own to destroy all the boy babies in Bethlehem, two years old. Can you imagine that scene? Soldiers of death, this death squad breaking into Bethlehem homes in the dead of night, taking the baby from away from their mother's arms, dashing those children on the swords. Through the streets, going every home, baby after baby, killing all night long. They had their orders, kill all the baby boys, don't miss one. They did their job well. By morning, the slaughter 
was over, the soldiers were gone, and the place was a killing field. Over the town of Bethlehem, loud cries were heard. And Matthew writes, Rachel crying for her children. Well, they got all the boy babies, all right, except one. Because in the night, God intervened again. You see how God's intervention here told, J- uh, to, told Joseph, get up, get dressed, get out, get gone, get to Egypt. And he did with a haste. Herod the Great slaughtered the infants of Bethlehem, but he didn't get the one that mattered most. So God saw to that. He murdered thousands in his lifetime, but he couldn't kill the most important person of all. Pharaoh tried to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. That didn't work either. Hebrew tried to kill Jesus. That didn't work either. Later, Moses would deliver his own people. Later, Jesus would save his own people. By faith Moses' parents hid him. By faith Mary and Joseph took baby Jesus and fled to Egypt until he was older. Until Herod himself had died a horrible death. Shall we kill our children today? No. No, not ever. For as long as God is God on his throne, children are forever a blessing and they are not a curse. Are they a burden? Yes, sometimes they are a burden. We weep over them. They go ways that we don't want them to go. They do things we don't want them to do. But they don't deserve to be killed for that. What about if they're imperfect? No, not for that either. We will not kill babies and we will not kill imperfect babies. For they are, in Sheriff Palin's words, perfectly beautiful in the eyes of God. And we ourselves, if we think about it, are imperfect too. Who are we to wantonly destroy God's gift of life? Who knows what God will do through our children if we receive them with love, if we protect them from those who would hurt them, if we raise them up with the strength and love and wisdom and courage, with all the grace that God himself will provide for his people. If we do that, who knows what God will do with our children. In fact, Abraham was given children because God said of Abraham, I know that he will raise his children after him and after me to follow me. In other words, he'll bring up a godly seed, a godly heritage. Are you going to expect that from the world? I don't think so. There was also on the news this past week, parents teaching their little one and a half year old how to swear and use the F word and use the N word and use all kinds of curses and so forth. (laughs) They thought that was funny. (laughs) They thought that was cute. That's what the world does with its babies. God has called us to raise our children to fear and love the Lord. We are not on the side of child killers. We will never be on the side of child killers. We stand with Moses' parents who hid him to save him. We stand with Mary and Joseph who loved their son enough to protect him from a tyrant. And most of all, we stand with the Lord Jesus who loved children and said, Let them come to me. You disciples, stop doing that. You're refusing to allow the children to come. Let them come to me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. When we welcome a child in his name, we have opened our hearts to him. And when we abuse our children, and certainly if we kill our children, we're cutting at the heart of God. Pray for those people marching on Washington today. By the way, just in closing, we are making great inroads in the abortion industry. 
to shut them down. The new law passed, which states that abortion clinics may not operate except within a certain close proximity to a hospital in case something goes wrong at the abortion clinic. You can run the woman and her baby to a hospital for emergency help. Well, guess what? That has shut a lot of clinics down because they aren't in close proximity to hospitals. Flint has lost one of its two abortion clinics over that very thing. And it's happening all across the country. NARAL is upset. Planned Parenthood is upset because we're making great inroads. The child killers are on the run and we need to keep them on the run, keep the pressure. Praise God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word today. Thank you for our children. They are a heritage from you. Whether we have one or five, it doesn't make any difference. They're precious to us. Whether they're young or older, whether they're grown or just infants, our children are heritage. Despite the policies of our country, despite the abortion industry, which is billions of dollar industry per year, may we continue to protest, may we continue to fight for the life of the unborn. Help us this day, because not only, is, as we have been saying this morning, affects the very young, but also affects the very old, because it devises a culture of death. It makes death and taking people's lives cheap and easy and acceptable. And those that are pro-abortion today may be in the nursing home experiencing euthanasia in the days to come. Themselves. We thank you for life. We thank for Jesus, the giver of life, true life. This is life indeed, Paul taught, to know God eternal, to know salvation and forgiveness. Paul told the Athenians, in God we move and live and have our being. He told them that. These pagans, he, they needed to understand the very breath they breathed was a gift from God. It could be taken at any moment. Honor your word. Help us in the struggle. Give us your wisdom. Give us your faith. Give us a prayerful heart. And to do more than just pray. We're thankful for the pregnancy center here in Lapeer. For our ladies that are involved in that. May we be supportive. Do what we can. For the glory of Jesus. For the saving of children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.